Hi everyone, Gordon just uh, butting in before we get started. We have an amazing episode today focused on the macro view of the markets from an investment and trading perspective. So there's going to be a lot of technical terms and jargon from people who live and breathe this stuff every day. So it is a departure from our usual Bitcoin basics content, but it is really important to zoom out and see how Bitcoin fits into this whole ecosystem, especially because it's such a nascent technology. They really jump straight into it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to link to a short video about hyperwaves and what it is. So check out the description. Again, for audio listeners, you might want to head across to our YouTube, go to bitcoinbasicspodcast.com. There you'll find our YouTube channel and other links so that you can enjoy the charts and graphs that are being shown. So it is quite a resource intensive episode. So I'm going to link absolutely everything in the show notes and description including a link to the book Tyler and Leah have authored, their contact information, various slides and charts that are used, and all kinds of other resources. Enjoy and on to the show. Now what happens next is um, unbelievably important and interesting. And I've been saying for a while now that the next few months are the most important months in Bitcoin's entire history. This is a Bitcoin Basics podcast with your host Ferris, that's me, and Gordon from CoinCompass.com. We're Bitcoin advisors and educators supporting business and individual investors to safely buy, store, and control their private keys, Bitcoins. This podcast is strictly educational and is not intended to be financial, investment, or legal advice. Full disclaimer in the show notes and at the end of this episode. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another Bitcoin Basics podcast. Um, today, we're actually doing a market roundup, and we've got a very special guest today. We've got uh, Tyler Coates, who's one of the co-authors of the Hyperwave Theory, the Rogue Waves of Financial Markets, um, co-authored with the late Tyler Jenkins and Leah Wald. Tyler, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing excellent. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, this is actually, I think, first time I've been introduced with my real name. I used an alias uh, my whole time in the space until um, publishing the book. Um, slight correction, uh, his last name is actually Jenks uh, with Tyler Jenks. Uh, uh, we published that to just a couple weeks ago um, and that was important enough for me to go ahead and uh, come out with my real name. So it's uh, really exciting to uh, hear, hear, you, hear you say that and uh, I'm, I'm doing well. How about yourself? Thank you. And again, we're very flattered to have you on here. And um, yeah, I read the book last night and this morning. I'm one of those guys who just uh, yeah, reads several um, books about trading. And this one, I cannot recommend highly enough. Um, anyone who's interested, we will put up a link for you to purchase it at uh, Archway Publishing. Um, so yeah, I downloaded it on my um, Kindle and I read it. And with books like these, it's always good to have a hard copy as well. You kind of like highlighting them. I've got quite a few books like that that I've done. Um, but yeah, I'd, I want, I'd love to get right into it. Um, so one thing I really like about this book, Tyler, is that um, the tagline really caught me and that's history doesn't repeat itself, but emotions do. Would you uh, just go into that a little bit, please? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's um, That was one of my favorite um, lines uh, writing it. And I've heard a lot of people, that's the first thing that they bring up. So I, I really appreciate that. And it's um, something that I believe in very deeply. Um, the foundation of technical analysis is that emotions drive markets, um, not uh, so much uh, emotions drive markets more than anything else, basically. And that is the explanation in my mind for why we see so many patterns repeating themselves. Um, yeah, you could say that it's history repeating itself, but um, I prefer the, the view that it's actually emotions repeating themselves that lead to these um, patterns that repeat themselves time and time again. Yeah, we, and we've discussed this in a recent podcast, um, and I've heard it as well, in that Bitcoin is unlike any other asset we've seen, but at the end of the day, it's still people buying and selling those Bitcoins. So those same patterns obviously apply, and, and we'll look at some charts later. Um, one thing I read in the book is hyperwaves start with a macroeconomic shift. So thinking beyond the world of Bitcoin, and we're looking, we'll look at some detail in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ later, are we witnessing a macroeconomic shift at the moment? 
Um, I think we're witnessing the culmination of the biggest macroeconomic shifts that uh, the world has ever experienced. And the reason why I say that is um, pretty simple uh, theory, and that um, relies on the idea that hyperwaves are uh, very rare. And uh, just for anybody that is unfamiliar, a hyperwave is kind of like a, it's a specific type of bubble, um, a, a very specific type of bubble. And they're very rare. We don't see these occur very often. And um, when they do occur, they are a result of a macroeconomic shift, which macroeconomic shifts are rare. Um, so when we see an abundant amount of them like we are right now, um, it suggests that a big macroeconomic shift is the sort of tremors that is leading uh, to the earthquake that follows. And um, that is very much what I believe because we haven't had another time when we experienced this many hyperwaves simultaneously in about a hundred years. And uh, that was what led, uh, basically what preceded the Great Depression was the last time that we had um, so many hyperwaves occurring at the same time. So what hyperwaves are we seeing occurring at the same time now, Tyler? And as you're speaking, I'll bring up a picture of the hyperwave. Oh man, there's a list, um, there's a, a group of um, uh, what we call us, ourselves hyperwavers. There's a Telegram chat group that um, identifies them all throughout um, various markets. And we have an Excel spreadsheet with, um, I believe, over 200 that are active right now. And the biggest ones are occurring, I think you mentioned, in the indices in the S&P 500 and uh, the Dow, um, the NASDAQ as well. Those are the biggest ones that we have ever seen or experienced. And it's a result of a bunch of smaller ones, the companies that comprise those indices also experiencing these patterns um, kind of in a fractal sort of way. So it's uh, definitely something that uh, is very common in the tech industry. Um, based on uh, think about you know basically the things that have been returning the most are going to be um, fitting this pattern more likely than not some others that are coming to mind uh, Boeing is another big one that we talk about in the book that recently broke down um, McDonald's uh, there's uh, some in the financial industry so yeah they're they're all over and they're in uh, currencies they're in commodities um, pretty much any assets you know, this was something I really appreciated in the book was just going back in history and looking at, uh, you looked at Dow, um, Dow Chemical, you looked at GE, and we see these patterns, and I'll bring them up on the screen now. Um, but one thing I want, I'd like to, before we jump ahead and look at some charts, you can hear the excitement in my voice. I love looking at charts and having people go over them with me. Uh, let's just have a look at the phases of a hyperwave. And I'll get you just to talk us through those phases. Um, so here we are. All right. Um, so you just want me to start with the phases. Um, there is uh, an important rule about hyperwaves, and that is that all hyperwaves have seven phases, and exactly seven phases. If it looks like this and has six or eight or another variation, then that is enough to disqualify it. Um, so we're always looking for seven phases that has four of them to the upside, uh, two to the downside, and one that is just flat. And phase one is where we start with with just a flat um, horizontal line that price always stays below phase one um, as long as phase one is active and it just goes sideways and Tyler talked about how the most important phase of a hyperwave is phase one and that is because of the idea that the longer a market moves sideways and stays stuck in a range, the bigger the following move is expected to be. So we can glean a lot about um, what may come by looking at the duration of phase one and the tightness. You also want it to be really tight range. Um, and that's kind of the, the tremors, basically. That's what can lead to a, a big explosion. A lot of pressure builds up. Um, phase two, uh, you don't have a high 
hyperwave yet in phase two. It is just when you close above phase one and then take off in a linear um, fashion, uh, that is going to be 30 degrees or less, um, then that is just going to be a lot of traditional markets experience this action where it's a sideways, uh, you go sideways, you're trapped under horizontal, you break out and then you trend up in a linear fashion. Um, that isn't yet a hyperwave, but it is something to start watching for now. Um, now, once you enter phase three, it is an accelerated uh, move. Now, instead of moving um, closer to 30 degrees, now you're moving closer to 40, um, 45 degrees. And as um, and both of these phase two and phase threes are angular trend lines that the price uh, must stay above. And it looks like we have a co-author joining us here. Uh, how's it going, Leah? Hey, hey guys. Thanks so much for having me on. This looks amazing. Keep going, Saw. I'm at a coffee shop and, and listening in. Happy to be here for any questions by you, Rock co-author. This looks great. And hey, Ferris. Hey, Leah. Thank you for joining us. How about you give uh, everyone a quick intro, please? Oh, sure. Okay. Coming straight from a coffee shop. Um, <laughs> I can't even. Okay. I only. I hope that my face is not on the screen, but I actually. Do what? So everyone is. Hold. I'll try and be the host and introduce you here. So Leah, the author of the book, and uh, everyone can recognize her from sports and the. Um, World Crypto Network, um, and you also ran the um, Hyperwave YouTube channel with Tyler. Is there anything I'm missing or I've mispronounced? <laughs> I think you got it. You also have another co-host here. Um, yeah, I think you got it. Uh, if you need anything about my background, more specifically, happy to chime in. Um, but I guess in that that works perfectly fine. Um, yeah, Tyler and I, Tyler, oh, okay. I'll stop speaking. Go for it. No, please don't. Um, yeah, so for that Hyperwave channel, and then uh, Tyler Code, Socrates here, uh, did the most beautiful job taking it over with Tyler and just totally kicked it up a notch. When uh, Jenks and I, when I have my two Tylers, naturally, when Tyler and I first started, it was totally janky. Um, and as per this book, the only reason we actually started a YouTube channel was to show digital permanence of Hyperwave, actually. So um, that's that's actually why we started in the space on on that regard, and then um, and then yeah, started teaching more on GBTC. But the book is out. I'm so excited for this journey with my amazing co-author here, and to be able to just have Tyler's legacy out there. But I think that Saw is even taking it to the next level. And something really cool just to note on the brilliant Socrates here is that um, him and Tyler used to actually have some divergent views on Hyperwave that Saul would then talk to Tyler about and then they would discuss and then um, Tyler Jenks would then even be like, wow, I didn't even think about it that way before. Uh, wow, that's really cool. And sometimes even change his viewpoint and would always talk about how you know it was taking it and even developing the the theory even further, especially with Socrates' line of questioning. So it really got even further developed when um, when the book was getting really off the ground on starting to write, which was a year ago uh, when it was actually finished. So it's cool that it's finally in completion. Uh, so I'll stop there because um, that's the most book related probably. Well, for one, I just want to say as a long-time listener, I started getting deep into the world of Bitcoin in 2016, and uh, I live in rural New Zealand, um, so pretty much work by myself in an office, and I, I remember listening into, I think it was like a 16-hour show where um, Jimmy and Tom were waiting for a uh, segment to get through, and you know, when it finally happened, I run into the living room, segment's in, segment's in, and my kids and my wife at the time are like, what the hell is wrong with that? What's he talking about? <laughs> Totally. And actually, I'll say for the first time on your show, uh, when I actually got into Bitcoin, sorry, saw, um, so which I, I've actually never said before, I usually talk about just uh, when I went in full time as a job. But maybe this will resonate. Most people hate when I talk about the World Bank. That's also why. But when I was at the World Bank, I was involved with, um, so I was working in the Sub-Saharan Africa region. 
and M-Pesa was being launched in Kenya, which is really one of the first microfinance, microloan, SMS-based um, payment systems. And Vodafone bought it, really took it up a notch. That was in 2009, 2008. And then... Um, a couple of years later, when I did hear about Bitcoin, uh, it really, really made sense from a value proposition. Like, because after seeing M-Pesa, um, it just, it was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that makes sense. Um, so obviously it was a totally different value prop, but Bitcoin is just beautiful. But the reason I was fascinated about it and still am really is its opportunities to help the developing world. Um, and then, you know, it, it went its own rabbit rabbit hole of how I got in full time with uh, Tyler and we launched a cryptocurrency arm. But uh, but I do think given that your coin, uh, your, your newsletter and everything that you do with Coin Compass is so much econ related. Um, I do think that there's a lot of conversation to be had around uh, also its value prop for the developing world. And as we talked about in hyperwave, hyperwaves only occur with major macroeconomic shifts. And I'm sure Socrates has already covered this, but we have the most amount of hyperwaves that we've ever seen in history, which, you know, if we look at especially emerging indexes and indices and everything across the world, you really see that the macroeconomic shifts are not just in the major indices, but rippling across the world in a domino effect. And unfortunately, right now to, to say that. So. Uh, I will stop. Um, I'll listen. Uh, chime in in any way that isn't uh, getting off of that presentation. But thanks for having me on, and thanks for letting me join a little bit. So, well, thanks. And it's actually very encouraging me, encouraging for me to hear that because I come from a political economics NGO background. I worked in uh, microfinance with third world countries, and this is where I saw Bitcoin as well was helping the unbanked, which is half of the world's population. So it's really encouraging to hear that. And, I've got to say, I'm feeling pretty privileged because Socrates just said this is the first time he's uh, coming out of his pseudonym and launched his first name, and you're telling me this is the first time you shared that story. So, yeah, I feel like I'm kind of in a very special spot here. Woo, for sure. <laughs> All right, I'm going to be quiet. So thank you very much for that, and um, I'll go back to sharing my screen because um, now, Tyler, would you rather call you Tyler or Socrates? It doesn't matter. I really have been on the screen. Sorry? I have been on the screen. Uh, you were, yeah, halfway. Oh my gosh, hilarious. Okay, now I'm totally hiding. Okay, so yeah, I'm back to the chart. So um, Tyler, you were just explaining phase four. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, great to see you, Leah. Thank you very much for tuning in. As, as always, it's a, a pleasure. And I think I was still um, uh, clarifying just a couple things about uh, uh, phase two, um, phase three, and phase four. All of them are going to be support lines that are drawn below the price. Um, that price does not close below these trend lines um, and if price does the phase is no longer intact so phase one is a horizontal resistance and phase two through four are angular trend lines at increasing angles um, as you see the as you go up from two three to four it starts um, increasing the velocity at which the price is moving and then um, when you're in phase three 85 percent of them do go on to enter phase four um, so when you do we talked about phase two being pretty common price action for a trend to break out after breaking through horizontal resistance um, and then when you break into phase three and you have a steeper angle, um, now you're kind of starting to go parabolic and um, there's an 85% chance you're gonna enter phase four. So once we're in phase three, we can start considering it a hyperwave, but there will be 15% of the time where it doesn't complete. Um, so then we enter phase four. Now um, it's inevitable that the price is gonna um, eventually break down that trend line and close below. And a number of things can happen from there but um, the common archetype that we're looking at now is uh, phase five breaks down um, with a big sharp move to the downside phase six is a big sharp 
bounce back to the upside that creates a lower high. And then phase seven um, takes over and takes us down to uh, uh, a retest of phase three, phase two, and then phase one eventually if neither of those hold up as support. Yeah, and what I really appreciate about this book and um, is this actually fit the pattern of what Bitcoin went through to a T. So phase one was at 2016, just a, a stealth phase. No one really paying much attention to it. And then we had that, yeah, um, run up from 3,500 to 10,000 and then 10,000 all the way to 20,000 was phase four. And then we saw, and please correct me at any time here, Tyler, then we saw the imminent correction from 20,000 USD um, and then the uh, ensuing dead cap bounce to 14,000. Now, we'll look at Bitcoin a bit more later, but what I really like about the book is that you show historical examples where this wasn't the only case this happened. And I'll bring up some charts here. Where we saw in... Uh, sugar was one that you mentioned, and same... I mean, this looks very similar as well. And now this is, I think in the book, you go further back in than this. So this is 2009 to today. And we have this similar pattern, just three lower highs, don't we? This parabolic shoot up here. I'm and still then, looking at the original chart uh, that we were just discussing. I'm not sure if I'm... Um, oh, hang on. Sorry. Sharing's paused. Thanks. Mm, something's happened here. Ah, here we go. Thanks, that Tyler. Uh, now, can you see a trading view chart at the moment? Yep. Oh, so this is sugar, and I'll just go through. And GE was another one. So in the book, you, I think you mentioned GE back in the twenties, but similar yeah. thing in GE wasn't it? That has had um, multiple hyperwaves back to back. Um, so yeah, it had one in the twenties, and then had another one here um, in the eighties, and uh, it's still in one basically. Uh, I'm sorry, you cut out there a little bit. Uh, GE, so, uh, um, GE still in a hyperwave at the moment, is it? Yep. Um, basically, um, now if you could zoom out just a little bit um, so that we could see where the phase one would be. Um, so I would draw in, yeah, right around using the high in 73 looks right to me. So maybe that's about $2 and 50 cents. Um, so it will still be a hyperwave. Yeah. 165. Um, it will still be in phase seven of this hyperwave until one of two things happen. It closes a weekly candle below 165 or it creates a new all time high. So, um, and that's the thing about phase seven, Tyler always talks about how they are the most maniacal of all phases. And this is the perfect example. I think this is the textbook example of a maniacal phase seven that lasts forever. Um, now we're in like the 20th year of this phase seven and look at the volatility. I mean, the thing goes from 60 bucks to 20 to 40 to eight to 28 back down an hour at 675 uh, and still in phase seven that whole time and that's something i read as well in the book was that hyperwaves tend to last around 28 years to 35 years um which i found very interesting because uh, i don't know if you're familiar with the book the fourth turning and it talks about um generational cycles and i think i don't know if there's a correlation there between just the average professional lifespan that someone will be trading in the markets or investing in the markets but i found that very very interesting correlation if it is one, it could just be a coincidence. Um, but yeah, I wanted... Interesting. Um, uh, yeah, we hadn't really considered um, why the duration, the average duration is right around what you mentioned, call it 30 years. Um, we, we never really thought, well, why is that the case? And that's what we love to do is ask, um, you know, not only, um, you know, what is going on here, but why? Why is there four phases to the upside? Uh, why is there that fourth phase? Why isn't there more commonly one or less? Um, so that's something we're always asking ourselves, but we never considered um, why the average duration is around 30 years, which is around the um, average probably career of somebody on Wall Street, which maybe it's a coincidence, but maybe it's not. Uh, that is um, really interesting for sure. 
Yeah, if you haven't read the book, um, The Fourth Turning, it's I highly recommend it because it, it talks about these generational cycles. And um, it was released in the early 90s and no one paid attention to it because they predicted that between the year 2005 and 2012, there would be a big shift in America, one that especially um, affected income distribution. So um, it started really picking up, obviously, with post-GFC. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, yeah. Um, now, this I wanted your attention on. So I know I'd like us to talk about the NASDAQ, because as you said before, it's the darlings that lead a bubble that are first to go down. We had that in the Nifty 50. We had that in the dot-com crash. So the NASDAQ, now if I read the book accurately, we are not, hang on, I need to bring up my notes here. Give me a second. So this is where I'm expecting to be corrected. So NASDAQ and S&P 500, not in a phase five because we haven't taken out the lows of 2018. Is that correct? Um, you could, well, it's not about the lows of 2018. Um, uh, it's more about the trend line um, that is, um, uh, and this is a tough one. I mean, there's a number of ways you can go, and I'll just say how I'm interpreting it, um, is that this is a very reasonable trend line, the bottom one that you have. Um, I would have to see the whole thing to to see, but that seems like a very reasonable situation. And if that and that's about as low as it could go. We couldn't really adjust any lower than that. This is using the wicks. Um, there isn't another lower, higher low that we could adjust to. So if this thing breaks down here, um, then that is is going to tell us what we need to know and breaking down is defined by a weekly close below the phase line um, and these phase lines are very very resilient uh, and that's what you're seeing here um, amidst everything going on this phase line is holding up and you'll notice that uh, if we close below that which I would say 6800 um, that would be it and that would be well above the lows of 2018 um, where we could say that it's done um, but at this point, it's it's not yet. Um, it's still uh, very reasonable to say that that is phase three, and this is its last kind of line in the sand, its last prayer. Sorry, phase three or, or phase four? Uh, this would be a three. Um, if you want to zoom out a little bit, um, I would need to see where the one is. Yeah, I think basically we would have our one above the high of 08, kind of around there, and then two would take off in 2013. Um, but I, I don't think I don't think that's right. Um, I think I'm drawing it a little different and using drawing this line all the way down to the low of 2009. Something uh, basically this this goes all the way back to like 1970, I believe. So we would have to really um, really yeah. take it back. No, so, sorry. The chart from yearbook is one that I kind of just been playing with myself. Um, okay. Yeah. But, um, and this is the thing I wanted to ask you. So, because listening to Professor Russell Napier and interviews with um, Stan Druckenmiller, where there's like Stan Druckenmiller said this is the only time in his career ever thought of quitting because he's fighting um, central bank intervention through quantitative easing and um, the bots. So he's competing with the two of them. Um, and I know this has been an incredibly difficult period for swing traders. So what's your opinion on how is this time different simply because we have this printing of money, which obviously can affect the barometer of where a price of um, the underlying instrument is? Or we've seen this before, such as a case in Japan. Um, I would say the answer is yes to both um, that we have seen this before and that it um, has been a nightmare to swing trade this market over the last couple of years. Um, that, that is what I do. I, I focus mostly on crypto, but have definitely been um, swing trading in the S and P and, and uh, which is basically same as this and the NASDAQ as well. And what we're seeing is just nothing but these B bottoms and V tops, which are just the worst uh, for me, especially um, that's like the worst situation that you can get because um, when you get the, 
you know, the big spike down. Now you're waiting for that next kind of higher low to get in a lot of times or whatever. And, and now we're just getting nothing but left behind uh, uh, at the top and at the bottom for the most part. Um, uh, so it's been a, uh, it's been an absolute nightmare and it's been a nightmare um, trading against uh, the feds. Um, you, you, I mean, this thing has been ready to break down for, I don't know how long. Um, well, I guess I do since we left the gold standard. <laughs> um, uh, it, it hasn't and it hasn't and it hasn't and it keeps every time that it, it, it could um, then the plunge protection team steps in they print a bunch of money and they go buy stocks and buy futures and prop up the market and it's something that we have seen before in Japan and we've seen it before elsewhere it, it works until it doesn't and when it doesn't that's when the bottom really really falls out and that's what is scary um, when you get something like a, a corona virus black swan like a black swan event like the coronavirus that um these guys are not planning for these guys with our calculations and everything about um everything that they could do um, we're not expecting anything like this so now they're in a situation where they're looking at printing six trillion dollars which is adjusted for inflation more than we spent on world war ii more than we spent to defeat hitler we're spent uh, printing because of the coronavirus and what are they going to do with it all? Like, uh, uh, fight the coronavirus with it? No, they're going to go buy stocks to prop up the market. I mean, it's absolutely sickening and, and it's, it's just going to keep working until it doesn't. And it's a nightmare. And that's what makes it such a nightmare for swing trading is because it's not natural. This isn't what you should get. These big crashes down, they get propped back up and spike back up. Uh, it's very, very unnatural. And the time that it doesn't work, it's going to be so, so scary. Um, but I am a, an optimist and something that you and Leah talked about are the two things that really, really I sank my teeth into about Bitcoin was uh, when I was researching, it was A, how much need I could see for it in emerging markets and in third world countries, and B, how much it could do to um, level out the income inequality for people that get in at the right time before everybody else has all their money in at the thing that crashes at the top, basically. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful for the long term, but not uh, feeling great about the short medium term. Yeah, I agree. And um, I can agree with you more. I was, I've been a swing trader for five or six years now, and I was short equities going into Brexit and going into the Trump election. And I still can't figure out how can I be right, but still lose money. <laughs> that's, uh, that's our markets for you. Um, they, they've announced that they're going to print this money and then uh, the U.S. dollar goes up in value. Uh, uh, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense, but uh, yeah, it's, I guess that's on the topic. <laughs> Do you want to learn how to safely buy and securely store your Bitcoins? Coin Compass is running a free two-hour webinar on Sunday, the 19th of April. For session times and a register, go to coincompass.com forward slash webinar. That's why I personally, so we t actually um, saw covered a lot, if anyone, uh, when they read the book, on technical analysis and the basics of various systems, actually. So... For anyone that wants a primer of TA, it's in there. And we do say that TA trumps FA. But since we're talking about traditional markets, and that is true, um, I do think that based on this conversation, it's extraordinarily prudent and prescient to understand that I think that FA and TA needs to be absolutely married right now. Because I think what we're looking at is one, manipulation. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second for TA and then I'll have saw jump in as per her his thoughts in a second but um, Given you guys are swing traders. Um, I would consider, consider myself more of a position trader or investor um, but uh, So and that's extraordinarily necessary Therefore TA to be able to follow the swings and when you guys are getting in and out and your stop losses for risk management That's a huge section that saw covers also that we cover in the book um, is how to ensure that you are uh, being appropriate with your money management. However, and not a however, but let me add. Um, so at least what I'm seeing in the markets is really, yes, the importance of understanding fundamental analysis. And when things aren't acting accordingly, and then when they have a catalytic, you know, catalyst effect um, that we're also seeing 
when certain events and certain news breaks do happen, and then you are seeing that hurting and very much that behavioral economics, typical uh, effects of emotions running rampant and everybody following each other. I think that we're seeing two black swans. We are having extreme manipulation in the oil market, you know, especially in the past couple of days, and the way that that's been affecting the markets. You know, at the the origins, I'd say yes, we have the black swan of obviously coronavirus, and this is unprecedented in so many different ways, and how that's affecting the markets, and how it's starting to truly affect the markets in EM, and how that has ripple effects that I think needs to be said about how our interconnected world, not just the major players, when we only talk about China or the other, you know, largest per GDP, you know, economies in the world, but also you know, for wheat right now, we're having, you know, potential extraordinarily protectionism measures in place from Kazakhstan and other countries, which are, is going to completely mess with, you know, the, the supply and demand of food, right? And so why do I say all this is just simply put, you're seeing, I think, across the world, the one, the colliding of two black swans at the, at the same time, which was the oil price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia and how that totally affected and shook up the markets to begin with, adding on coronavirus, adding on now all the different news that we're hearing every single day about dystopian narratives of more and more deaths. Singapore is now going to be on lockdown really as of Tuesday. That wasn't a thing. Um, and then just generally... I think that it is starting to really get priced in. I think that there was, you know, a little bit of hopium when the Fed made their announcements. And when we look about at the markets right now, they're completely maniacal of being able to understand what's going on, right? I mean, <laughs> the way that they've acted is 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 uh, crazy, you know, being able to time it. And as you guys were saying, as swing traders especially, it's, uh, it's insane, right? Um, but... I think what investors are waiting for is the rest of the econ data to come out and we're seeing it. And I think that also as soon as more catalysts happen around the world, if it's a food shortage, if it's, you know, if we're seeing, you know, the rest of which we are PMIs dropping, you know, the world is interconnected more than anything before, which is why we're seeing these global macroeconomic shifts. Oh, one second was getting a call. Let me get off that. Um, but just simply put, if we're reading, which we are these hyperwaves right now in the traditional markets, which is extraordinarily necessary to do, it is extraordinarily difficult to do with these short-term price movements. But I think that's why it's absolutely necessary to have a long time horizon as well in understanding that this could be a drawn out thing as it, and I truly believe, and especially to Saw's point of what's going on with the Fed and money printing and the unsustainability right now that you're going to see a long, slow downward cycle. I think we're looking at a depression, not just a recession, but that we need to keep in mind that um, as much as it's wonderful to see green when I wake up in the morning for the S&P, which happens, I'm in Singapore, so it's I feel like I'm living in the future and I wake up to you know, scary news in the past, um, thinking about the US, but we are seeing green in a lot of different ways. But, but I think that we really do, for the most part, need to look at the much bigger picture and how that's going to play out and hedge accordingly. And also just one last point is, you know, the way that safe havens are working right now is, is an extraordinarily important thing to look at. Um, they people are not flocking to the traditional safe havens that they used to. Um, yen was also one before, right? You know, all the traditional safe havens, if anything, what you're looking at is a belief in the greenback as a safe haven. Everybody has this crash dash for cash, right? From business to individuals and from a money management perspective and from a, a personal money management, not just business, prudent business, is that that's actually good right now. And as we know, you can be short, you can be long, you can be in cash. And right now you actually wanna be in cash, but the thing is long-term also, what does that mean? 
right? We talk about inflation in the book. We talk about worries about the dollar. We talk about going off the gold standard, closing the gold window, all of that. But we, you know, historicity is going to play out. And right now it's, you know, it's taking care of you and yours in the meantime. And that's important um, because we're seeing so much unemployment and we're going to see more and more and more because I think everybody needs to remember that applying for unemployment and unemployment stats actually getting um, added in and priced in in the markets is actually, you know, weeks to months afterwards because it needs to be added to the system. Some people are sometimes in shock. Um, it takes a process, et cetera. So there's going to be more negative data that comes out. And I think as more of these econ negative econ points and as more of the ripple effects across the EM world, the emerging market world and developing economies, which are way too fragile and are still completely interconnected because we rely on them for commodities um, because they're completely export dependent. They're completely singular uh, commodity focused. Um, we're going to see even more. And I think that absolutely we're seeing the cyberwave play out, but everybody needs to look at the long-term perspective. And I do think if anything right now playing traditional markets, not crypto, but traditional markets, we need to be thinking about FA married with TA and TA. Uh, yes, trumping uh, right now still uh, in order to have proper money management as everything is maniacal. But from a long-term perspective of what we're seeing and also from an investment perspective, we need to be in consideration of what we're seeing in a hyperwave. And um, I think it's scary times. Sorry to end on a sad note. No, 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 no. We need to be realistic here. So I do appreciate that. And uh, yeah, a lot of things you said there just really echo with me. And so yeah, one thing, um, Todd, I'd love your opinion on that as well, is that I I've been waiting for this correction for four, maybe five years now. And it's here and I'm just too shell-shocked from experience to short it. So, so where are you at the moment? Are you just in cash or are you looking for opportunities to either go long or short? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in uh, selling this bounce. I am thinking it's a uh, very decent chance that the S&P gets up to 3,000. If it does, the risk-reward on a short there is uh, too good to, to pass up as far as I'm concerned. Um, right now, it's still a little bit of no man's land. Um, I, I do think there's still some room to correct Um and to get everybody to think that the bottom is in, basically, that's kind of what I'm waiting for is everybody to to be miss, missing out, like upset because they feel like they missed the bottom or, or whatever. And um, yeah, so that's something that I think uh, being in cash, as Leah said, is um, is the smartest thing to do in an environment like this. Um, I'm not uh, obviously giving any advice. I'm just saying that in um, uncertain environments, um, the best places, the best place to be is going to be cash in, in general. And one thing that I will say is I've been super impressed by how well gold has been holding up throughout this. And everything that I hear is just that uh, uh, the demand is overwhelming the supply and uh, there are people going to stores and the stores are not having the gold to sell them. Um, there was a um, situation where um, they're having trouble delivering um, gold when um, some uh, some options uh, expire and uh, it seems like the world is picking up on um, how important gold is in an environment where the government will do anything it can to manipulate the market and to prop it up. Um, traditionally, gold is a safe haven, but it should kind of sell off big um, in the first kind of panic, and maybe it will still, but what I've been super impressed with is it hasn't even created a, a lower low on the weekly. It has held up better than any other asset in the entire world outside of things that are specifically benefiting from this. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm very, very interested to, to see what happens. And I think right now it's, it's pretty much no man's land. Uh, if we, if we continue bouncing, it becomes a very, very attractive shorting opportunity. Can I add yeah. to that? Please. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Saw. And also some of the precious metals um, are making some interesting rebounds as well, uh, our sisters. What I find interesting that I've been watching is, again, it's not easy 
for retail investors to get in on gold. We're not, you know, physical bullion if we talk about just, you know, lumping, you know, a 25 pound thing around. But what you're seeing to Sauce Point is um, the small amounts of gold, whether it's buying coins, whether it's going to shops, um, whether it's any other way to actually have the, the physical gold, which, you know, the spreads right now are really interesting. But what's fascinating to me is, yes, um, you, you are seeing, you know, institutional players buying. I'm not, you know, I'm on record, so this is bad, but I don't think as much central banks are buying like they used to. Um, but uh, also, so you have the institutional players on a different level and the retail public who, you know, can't afford the, the physical bullion are still going out and buying, to Saw's point, physical gold in smaller amounts that they can afford. I find that super fascinating and super important to watch. Um, and I agree with uh, Saw's TA on that, um, that it, it's, it, it, is, it is fascinating. It reminds me of, you know, also the worries that we talk about in the book of, of World War II and, and actually maybe the biggest values that we have about Bitcoin and <laughs> fungibility and confiscatability and being able to, you know, not have to lug a, a brick you know, in your suitcase around. Um, I don't know your thoughts on on that, Ferris. Oh, I agree entirely. And um, we actually recently wrote about this. Um, and with gold, there's an old saying, the uh, West spends its gold and the East keeps it. And in the last 10 years, we've seen the Central Bank of China buy up gold from Germany, France, England, uh, obviously to launch that uh, the gold uh, reserve exchange with Russia and Iran. Um, and this is something that we um, wrote about last year. So I'll bring up my screen share here. Because we, in 2019, we actually saw a very nice, clean correlation between gold and Bitcoin. Um, yeah, very clean. And, you know, as I said, I think you mentioned this in the book, as soon as a correlation is obvious, it stops being obvious. And... 2020, we've seen that correlation break down. And if anything, Bitcoin is actually more resembling the trajectory of the S&P 500. Now, I believe Bitcoin is a long-term store of value. It's the most secure asset mankind's ever seen or created. Um, but yeah, what's your opinion on that? Because it's not, it seems, you know, this just seems the perfect opportunity for Bitcoin to basically, you know, really take off but it's, it's really stuck in this range at the moment. So just, yeah, your opinions on the fundamentals of Bitcoin now in this current climate and also just a TA perspective as well, please. Go for it, Tom. Um, yeah, that is something that I, um, that's what I was kind of thinking is that gold has held up um, much, much better than anything else. And that's kind of what we saw in that chart where it was very correlated with Bitcoin uh, there kind of on the upside. Now on the downside, Bitcoin really sold off harder. Um, it, it acted more like stocks um, than gold, which is a big, big sign for gold. And this is what I've been waiting for um, for, for years, basically, is that um, we've never had Bitcoin in an S&P bear market. And in S&P bear markets, we were just talking about what does everybody say? You, you get into cash, you get into something that's safe. And maybe the market is confident enough in gold that um, now enough people are getting into it that it's not um, acting like the other markets, which is what I'm seeing. And I was definitely hoping to see that out of Bitcoin, but I, I, I never had e even the slightest degree of confidence that that would be the case. Um, bottom line is, is that um, cryptocurrency is the riskiest asset class in the world. And when the S&P, when, when the world enters a risk off environment, um, what do you think they're going to do uh, with Bitcoin? They're not going to buy it. Uh, and it doesn't matter if the, um, you know, if they come out and announce that there's unlimited U.S. dollars in the world. Um, it's not going to reflect in the Bitcoin price. Uh, well, that's the most likely thing. Um, and now what happens next is... Um, unbelievably important and interesting. And I've been saying for a while now that the next few months are the most important months in Bitcoin's entire history. Um, and, I, and I don't think there's much 
uh, very close, you know, there's been some other big events. The biggest is how does it act in this environment? Because it should do well. And uh, in general, what we saw out of gold and other things like that is there's a first big sell-off, but then it comes back better than the others and it starts to diverge. And then um, it enters a bull market even while the S&P is just kind of still finishing a bear market or consolidating. That's what happened with gold in 2008, and that might be what we're seeing right now. I am fascinated by what we're seeing out of Bitcoin recently. Uh, you mentioned how it's kind of moving sideways. Uh, this recovery that we've just seen off after that big sell-off is hugely important to me. Um, it's now it's recovering faster than stocks, um, and now it's starting, and now it's even out returning gold. Uh, if I'm, uh, I should check that, but uh, over this last bounce of the last couple of weeks, I would think that um, Bitcoin has now started to outperform gold, which would be enormous. And uh, an explanation may be found there and something that I was really, really hoping to see and what may end up saving the day for Bitcoin is alts. And how funny would it be if everybody in alts fly to safety into Bitcoin? So that um, added demand and added um, inflow of market cap is enough to kind of save it from really continuing on a downward spiral that I, I and many others think the, the traditional markets will. Um, and that's what we're seeing is that uh, the alts are not bouncing like Bitcoin bounced. The alts are just consolidating sideways, whereas Bitcoin actually bounced very strong. Um, I mean, it's up a hundred percent from the lows, and that is a big deal. Um, so I'm paying very, very close attention. And and for the first uh, day, I was I've been watching these markets very closely. And I made a um, just a post uh, the, the other day in, in Telegram when Bitcoin made a move, a significant move, and the S and P and gold were just going flat. It made me sit up in my seat like, oh my goodness, what are we seeing? So every little divergence that happens over the next couple of weeks or months where Bitcoin acts stronger than the S&P or even stronger than gold, that could be a huge sign. And the reason why it could really perform well, even in a risk-off environment, is because now people are taking risk off from their alt positions. And there are big market caps and alts that if those now flood into Bitcoin, like stocks are flooding into US dollar, um, now we could find ourselves in a very interesting situation that we wouldn't have without these alts um, and their big market caps uh, relative to Bitcoin. Now that's fascinating because um, Tom Reyes made that similar point over 12 months ago, I think, where he said he wouldn't believe in the new Bitcoin bull market until Bitcoin started going up and alts started going down. That's fascinating. And that is something I remember him saying and something that I didn't, I didn't agree with that at all. Um, uh, what I did pay and do pay very close attention to is all it's going down versus Bitcoin. And I was very bullish on Bitcoin um, over the beginning of this year um, on the run from seven to, to 10,000. Very, very bullish because now we're uh, leading into the halving and we found some areas, some, uh, some support at some very, very key areas. Um, so now I had every reason in the world World to believe that we were ready to take off, but alts were outperforming Bitcoin during that run, and it really, really bothered me. And um, now we're seeing um, a potential a divergence, not only in the Bitcoin value, but if, if we see alts even just go flat and Bitcoin go up like we've just been seeing, it's a huge deal, a huge deal, especially when it's a bounce like this, when there's a dead cat bounce coming and people are rushing to sell their alts, but Bitcoin just keeps chugging along, keeps chugging along and taking that sell pressure. Big, big deal. Ferris, can I ask a question I saw um, related to the book? So in the book, uh, we also talk about the importance of overlaying other indicators. And so saw um, especially all the indicators you use. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what indicators uh, are also confirming this belief for you that you use? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot, and um, it's definitely a good idea to use a handful of um, indicators as well as um, fundamental analysis. And I completely agree with Leah that you need to marry the two. Um, and the the one thing that I can say there is I, I I really really believe in technical analysis to help me to understand short term and medium term price movements, but fundamentals drive long term price movements. And crypto is the perfect example where um, the fundamentals of something like XRP are as bad as it gets, but in the short or medium term, that thing can go to the absolute moon. In the long term, it ain't uh, because of the fundamentals, and that's why um, Bitcoin's going to last, uh, are, are the fundamentals in the long term. Um, so that's uh, definitely what to look for is when fundamentals and technicals line up. If the technicals are staying short and, and potentially medium term ain't looking good, and the fundamentals ain't looking good, that's when um, it's, it's you know painting a, a pretty clear picture and when you can maybe be more confident than other times and that's when you definitely want to look for confirmation in uh, multiple indicators and uh, my favorites are uh, going to be moving averages and looking for big moving average crossovers to help me identify reversals in the market so I'm looking for 50 and 200 day um, to really identify the the medium term um, what what it's um, really looking like over the, the coming months and maybe year or two. And then I look at the um, 50 and 200 week as a more long-term indicator for um, what may be coming in the next uh, uh, maybe two to, to eight years. Um, so we, uh, the last, the last area of support um, that I could hold out my hope for is the 200 week moving average where um, that big move to the downside um, for most indices um, uh, has now is now either supported that 200 moving average or regained it. And that's a really big deal. But based on the fundamentals of the whole economy shutting down due to lockdowns and quarantines, I can't see any reason why that would continue to hold for anything more than a dead cat bounce. Um, something I actually wanted to ask you both is, so hyperwaves are rare, uh, but the book goes on to talk about funky hyperwaves. Can you describe those, please? Absolutely. Um, so those are even more rare than normal hyperwaves. And um, we looked at when a hyperwave um, goes to the fourth phase and then breaks down. Um, then there are two things that can basically save it from returning to phase one. Um, it is... Uh, and I appreciate you pulling that up because that will help. So after it creates that lower high, um, that is phase six. After that occurs, it is in phase seven. And now there are only two things to look for, um, for it to keep it from going back to phase one. And that would be um, support from the old phase two or phase three, which can be extended out. Uh, and on this one, the phase three is a little too steep. So there would be no chance for it to save it. But we see if we extended phase two out, um, the phase seven is going to come down and touch that at some point. And there are situations where that phase two provides the support and it goes on to create a new all-time high. Perfect example is the NASDAQ. Um, 08 uh, meltdown was a uh, found support right on the phase two trend line when it was extended out, and then it went on to create a new all-time high. And that's when you get a funky hyperwave. And basically that two, if it was to extend out and provide the support, now you just keep extending that out. Now this is our new two in that whole three, four, five, six, seven. That was just a two, uh, basically. And now you look for a three and a four, which is what uh, basically um, NASDAQ got into a three and maybe debatably a four, but that is what a funky hyperwave is, is um, creating a new all-time high after failing to break down an old phase two. Okay. So in this case, NASDAQ, if we make we go to all we can still potentially go to new all-time highs from here absolutely um and uh um so that already happened in 08 for that funky hyperwave and now it's trying to find support basically on that line that we were looking at um, if it finds support there then it keeps it intact and uh we keep chugging along if not um, that's the the phase three that we were looking at if that doesn't hold a support then we look at the phase two um, to be the next target which could end up holding and sending it to a new all-time high which would be 
pretty light reasonably likely but um so yeah and then if that didn't hold that's when phase one becomes the target um now i am aware of your time here guys and you have other commitments but one thing i really like your opinion on is round numbers so as a trader i avoid getting um into trades within one percent of a round number just that psychological number but to me it seems like bitcoin tends to ignore those um am i reading that correctly what's your take on that I would disagree with that because um, uh, round numbers are something I pay very close attention to myself. And I, if you would have asked me without um, providing your opinion, I probably would have said that I think Bitcoin respects it almost more than anything else because Bitcoin's so psychological. It's not really driven by fundamentals nearly as much as anything else in the world. And it's um, a very, very psychological market, Bitcoin, uh, the epitome of that as far as I'm concerned. And that's what the round numbers are, is that for whatever reason, um, $100, uh, well, let's just say $6,000 um, looks so much more expensive than $5,999. Uh, for whatever reason and i agree that um uh, well the price will just dance around round numbers a lot is is kind of what i notice is it'll shoot to uh, ten dollars over it and then i'll shoot to ten below and then i'll shoot back above and kind of dance around it and then just i mean some examples that we can kind of uh, that came to mind as you said that was um the the big ones um 1k was a huge number for Bitcoin. Uh, that's where a top, a bubble topped. And again, it kind of got above that number, making you think, oh, now we're above 1K, got up to 1100 and whatever. And then um, that ended up being the top that led to a multi-year bear market that it took for us to actually reclaim 1000. And uh, then on the following, the next biggest number from 1000 would be 5K, um, led to a big, sharp, immediate correction. Um, and that was something that I was paying very close attention to. Um, and that's uh, where we didn't even get up to 5,000. I think it was like 4976, uh, something like that. It was like no exchange got to 5K back in 2017. Um, yeah, maybe some did, uh, but it was very interesting how so many just pulled up right short of it, and then it dumped down to what it dumped down to, another round number at 3,000, and we see that that's where the prior move found resistance. Um, so 10K was a super interesting one to me, and absolutely one I was um, looking to sell, and thinking that that was going to be the new 1K, 100%. I had something glued to my desk uh, that basically said 10K is going to be the new 1K, so that when everything got uh really you know euphoric in my mind that i'd remember okay 10k like i was planning on it and i didn't uh, i i scale out i don't i don't just make decisions for my full position so i had plenty to hold through it but i i definitely thought that that was going to be a big big top um and then we blew through it and found resistance at another round number um up at 20k and then 10,000 did become really important after that um, basically we have since been unable to ever turn 10k into support and every time we've gotten above 10k since then um, it's been a selling opportunity now and that's you've actually just kind of caught me out here because that's i remember i had an order an on-stop order to buy just above ten thousand, and when i saw it shoot through i canceled the order thinking it went through too fast it's going to have to pull back and i watched it go from 10 to 20 nothing in <laughs> oh, i would a uh, quick comment i would completely agree with saw sorry Ferris. um also based on emotional analysis, something we talk about in the book, it's easier to say round numbers, right? Uh, if you, like for people, right? If you're calling out media, if you look at it, Novogratz says, like we say 5K, 1K, it's, it's easier to say round numbers. So I also think that that does stick in people's brains. So I do think that you end up down, uh, dancing around it, you see more volume around it, but also because you remember traders or you remember calls based on comfortable round numbers, um, whether they are the exact price points and trend lines. I don't think people are going to also say cents. Just kidding. But, um, but I, I do think that from an emotional perspective uh, and what sticks in your brain is just uh, comfy round numbers when you throw out especially bets and stuff like that, which Socrates and I get in, uh, play too many bets. So as a professional poker player. Yeah, um, when I trade um, individual equities, I absolutely respect round numbers because they're, they're points of supply and um, demand, they're points of resistance and support. So I absolutely respect them. I just 
And looking at it now, it is obvious to me. I think I was just so burnt by that 10K call. I just had a call. <laughs> That's Bitcoin. That's what it's doing to me. <laughs> All of us. That's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, yeah something that I uh, am constantly amazed by um, how some things matter way, way more than they seem like they ever should. Um, price round numbers being one of them. And another is like uh, daily closes and weekly closes and yearly opens and quarterly closes, which we just had a quarterly close. Um, it's unbelievable how important these levels are. And it doesn't make any sense because I mean, if the candle closed 10 minutes later, then it would have closed at a different price. And now all of a sudden that's the important level. It's uh, it's like something that's just so so psychological that um, it, it permeates throughout the whole market uh, much more than maybe even we understand consciously ourselves. Like for sure, you know, us talking about this now, I'm sure I fall victim to this um, all the time where, um, you know, oh, price is above 7,000, uh, you know, and uh, now we're, we must be breaking through resistance. Uh, you know, it's uh, something that I think even more than we consciously understand um, as market participants, these things are really permeating into our decision making. Well, and, and we're so you sorry go ahead Leo. i was, I was just gonna say and, and then i have to jump off we're so silly as humans with cognitive dissonance um we talk about that in the book but we it, it's it's silly you know in retrospect as well you know we think about getting burned we think about all these different things and and uh our memory uh tricks us very often no, I agree. Yeah, one thing I mentioned before you came on is um, I've read 20, 30 books on trading. And this one I really appreciate it because um, I, we said early on, Bitcoin is an asset like we've never seen before. But at the end of the day, it's people buying and selling it and people do things based on emotion. So I can't recommend this book highly enough. I started reading it last night and I only had to pick it up again this morning. I just It was very, very good read, very easy to read. And for anyone who's contemplating trading, First of all, look at my gray hairs. That's where they came from. And okay, um, yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> I do recommend up there with market wizards and come into my trading room, which was written by psychologists. Actually, I find some of the better traders tend to be psychologists. Um, so yeah, I, I recommend it highly enough. And Leah and Tyler, I'm very grateful for your time. Um, thank you very much, guys. It's been a real treat. Um, now, is there anything else? Uh, where can our audience find more about you guys where would you like them to go um yeah i'm on uh, uh youtube and twitter and uh trading view not as much anymore but um i do my best to um, share some analysis when i get the chance and um yeah so uh keep an eye out for me around and thank you very much uh ferris for having us on it's been a, a pleasure to meet you and it's been a great discussion thanks for um reading the book and, and having so um so many um good things to talk about so that's that uh, went really well, I think. And thank you uh, again. And let's definitely stay in touch in the future. Uh, it's a pleasure, Tyler. And just out loud for our podcast listeners, your Twitter handle is? It is um, Socrates, uh, spelled uh, like it's pronounced in the, in the dictionary. Uh, S-A-W-C-R-U-H-T-E-E-Z. Thank you. And yourself, Leah? That's awesome. Um, First of all, Ferris, thank you so much. And Saw, so, thanks. It's so great to see you as always. Um, I didn't expect the fun of being able to be on the call this morning, so it was a real lucky treat. Um, I am on Twitter. <laughs> uh, my name is Leah Wald, and I have recently joined a new firm. Stephen, who potentially may be on your show in the future, is a um, brilliant gentleman, and we're going to be announcing some cool stuff soon. Um, so I think you guys will hear about what we're up to, uh, we're in stealth mode, but building a new asset management firm, uh, that specialized in, uh, digital securities, cryptocurrencies and others. So I think you will be announcing a lot of stuff soon, but Twitter and, uh, I guess that's all she wrote for me right now. Cool. Yeah. We're actually or he, or even McClurg on, uh, this coming week. So Maybe I'll keep my track for it going and get him to announce something for the first time as well. <laughs> awesome. 
Awesome. But Leah, thank you very much for opening so many doors for us. We are very grateful here. And um, Tyler, thank you very much for your time, guys. This has been a lot of fun for me, and I could go on and on, but I'm respecting your time here. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you very much, Thanks. guys. Thanks for watching or listening. Please visit coincompass.com slash free to register to our socials and discover other free content. Subscribing, liking, and following helps this content remain ad-free. Until next time.